you're listening to the 10 by 9 podcast. As you know, 10 by 9 has moved to Zoom until we can return to the black box. And one of the unexpected delights of going online is the international audience and storytellers who've joined us. We had our October 10 by 9 this week on the theme, The Last Time. And we had a truly global cast. Going west to east, we had two storytellers in Canada, three in the USA, two local voices, then Glasgow, and for the first time ever, one in Mumbai. And we loved it. So on this podcast, we have three stories for you from that event, plus a mini story and an announcement at the end. So don't switch off too early. So in case you're wondering, I'm Paul Doran, and in 2011, Padrigo Tuma and I started 10 by 9 in Belfast. It's very simple, nine people with up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. You can find all our events and all the things you need to know about us and more at our website, 10by9.com. Okay, our first story in this podcast is from first-timer Catherine Galvin. She told this amazing story from her home in Illinois. The last time that I had a conversation with my little brother Christopher was not the last time that I talked with him. Christopher is the baby of the family. He's the youngest of five kids born in six years, no multiples. As you can tell from that rate of reproduction, uh, that Chris did not edge me out of the prime baby spot by very much time. Despite the age difference being minimal, that did not stop me and my sister Meg from bestowing, some may say subjecting, Christopher to a great deal of mothering. Truth be told, we mothered the heck out of that guy while he was growing up. On me, that sometimes looked like a lot of talking in a way that might not have borne any resemblance to an actual conversation. These days, I do all of the talking with Chris. The last time I had a conversation with Chris was in 2006, a few days before he died. He was 37 years old and he died of the same disease that had killed our father 34 years earlier in 1973. Chris was the sixth family member to die of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or IPF. IPF is an autoimmune disease that relentlessly scars and destroys your lungs. I'm gonna ask everybody if they would please, with me, take a deep and slow breath. IPF attacks those beautifully flexible tissues of the lungs and it turns them into solid, useless rocks in your chest. During his lifetime, Christopher uh, absorbed the tyranny of this disease again and again and again, as it took our father and our beloved aunt and uncles. That was the cadence of our childhood. Eventually, the dying slowed down and there was a reprieve for a time, but that came to a devastating end in 2004 when Christopher was diagnosed with IPF. Unfortunately, IPF treatment had advanced very little. Chris was given the same course of powerful anti-inflammatory steroids that our father had been given in 1973. The only difference in 2004 was the possibility that Christopher might be lucky enough to receive a double lung transplant. The plan was to keep Christopher as healthy as possible, as long as possible, to delay going on the lung transplant list. The reason to delay is that although lung transplants are the only thing that can save an IPF patient, sadly for many people, they don't save your life for very long. Chris was facing a tough path no matter what happened. But here's what you have to know about my little brother. 
he was amazing in emergencies, even his own. He just went into the zone where he took on a completely calm composure and he navigated through whatever crisis was happening to him and all the while bringing whomever else was in it with him, all along with him and taking care of them too. So one quick example to illustrate this. When Christopher was 18 years old, uh, he was helping a friend trim some tree limbs on a ladder with a chainsaw. Nothing could go wrong with that, right? Somewhat predictably for anyone not an 18 year old boy, something did go wrong. The chainsaw went right through the tree limb, hit the metal fence and bounced back into Christopher's leg. Uh, it slashed open a deep and wide gash, the spans of his leg. Luckily didn't hit the artery, didn't hit the bone, um, but uh, his friend was immobilized, you know, was shock, just didn't do anything. And as Chris lay on the ground, literally holding the now two pieces of his leg together with blood splurting everywhere, uh, Chris calmly talked his friend through what he needed to do to save Christopher. So I truly believe that Chris would never die from IPF. Um, it's a thing about denial. I thought you would know when you were in it. Um, apparently you don't. I just knew that Chris is going to receive that double lung transplant and he was going to have this fantastically healthy life after transplantation. He was going to be that guy, the one in a million running marathons uh, 20 years after a transplant. Now, you should know that Chris was not a runner, um, but that, that did not deter me in my absolute certainty of what the future held for Christopher. What was not factored into Christopher's plan um, is that he would go along and he would be relatively stable for 18 months with this disease. And then he would have this precipitous plunge in his lung function. And the moment that that started to happen, Chris went to the doctor. It was a Wednesday and they activated him on the lung transplant list. And four short days later on the Sunday following, Chris was on life support. He was admitted to the hospital on a Friday and even with the supplemental oxygen that he was being given, Christopher's oxygen levels just kept plummeting. Uh, my sister Meg was with Christopher, as she always was, when they put him on the ventilator. And she tells the story of how Christopher, surrounded by medical personnel who were trying to figure out how to keep him alive, um, did what Christopher always did. He calmly took charge. He pointed at the only person in the room who could help him, the respiratory therapist, and he said, intubate me. The first night, uh, my cousin Joan and I sat by Christopher's bedside. The, the thing you need to know about a ventilator is that it wants to be in control of the breathing. It's, it's kind of its only job. The thing about Christopher is he also wanted to be in charge of his breathing. Um, so although he was sedated and really should not been able to do this, all night long he fought with that ventilator. And it was a long, scary night and it was filled with alarms and codes and medical personnel rushing in to referee this fight that Christopher was having with his ventilator. So the next day, the doctors put Christopher in a medically induced coma so that his ventilator could do the job of keeping him alive while we waited for the news that he would receive someone else's lungs. And it's an awful thing to desperately wait and pray for that kind of news, knowing what it means for somebody else. But we sat vigil for two and a half weeks waiting for that news. 
Someone was with Christopher all the time. There was a constant stream of people into the hospital, uh, sitting with Christopher and sitting with us. Uh, by the time we finally got the news that he was getting new lungs, Christopher was really, really sick. Um, he made it through the long and difficult transplant surgery. I wasn't a given. Finally beaten Christopher, or excuse me, IPF, and Christopher was going to be okay. And he had two really good weeks after his transplant. He was getting stronger. They would take him off the vent for little periods of time, and he would make us laugh as he had his whole life. And he seemed to be on the road to recovery. And we all started to exhale just a little bit. On what would be the last of those good days, I had my last real conversation with Christopher. I returned to the hospital for the overnight shift and Chris was on the vent and he couldn't talk. So I talked as I always did. And all of a sudden every alarm on every piece of equipment attached to Christopher went off and people started flowing into the room. Um, they were coming and coming and they shuttled me out of the room. And as the hospital intercom beckoned the nurses and the doctors and the respiratory therapists, and they closed the curtains and they closed the doors and they separated me from my little brother. And I could hear the doctors loudly barking orders to one another and to Christopher. Christopher, stay with us, Chris, Chris, stay with us. And it seemed to go on forever. And then it stopped and it was quiet. And those amazing, miraculous human beings had kept Christopher alive one more time. And it was a long while before I was allowed to go back to him. By that time, my cousin Andy had arrived and he went in with me and Chris was really agitated. I was sure he was afraid. I had listened to all the violent and heroic things that they had done to Christopher and it scared the hell out of me. So I tried to comfort him. I was trying to reassure him and nothing I said helped. Andy and I got a whiteboard and we wrote out the letters of the alphabet and moving slowly through each letter, Christopher nodded or blinked to tell us what letters that we needed to form the words of the message she was trying to give us. And it was short and it was direct, a two word message, let go. I immediately went back to my reassurances. I was sure I knew what Christopher needed to hear. I explained to Christopher, there was nothing to let go of. He wasn't in danger anymore. He was safe. It had been an awful moment, but it had passed. He was strong. He had made it. It was behind him. Thank God Andy was there. Andy could see what I could not see. He gently suggested that maybe Christopher was not afraid. Maybe he was trying to tell us something else. And that broke me. And in doing so, it opened me up and let me hear what Christopher was telling us. Christopher was telling us what he needed for us to do for him. And in that last conversation, I was able to tell Chris that I heard and I understood him and that we would do that. Sadly, that time came within just a few days. Chris had a few good more moments, but in the following days, he went into what was an unmistakable downward spiral. My mother and my siblings and the doctors knew it was time. It was time to liberate Christopher from those machines that he had been fighting and been keeping him alive for five weeks. And it was time to say goodbye and let him go.
For a long time after Christopher's death, I was comforted by that last conversation with him. It had given me this gift of clearly knowing what Christopher had wanted, but it took me years to really appreciate what a profound gift it was. Through my own grief journey, I came to understand Christopher's deeper message. As I moved through my guilt of not, been able, not being able to keep Christopher alive and not being able to keep him safe and protect him throughout his life, as I moved through the anguish of not having my little brother to live life with, and through my absolute fucking rage over the shitty deal that Christopher had been given, through all of that and more, I finally, finally came to understand that last conversation. Christopher wasn't telling me what he needed. His body didn't need me to let go of it. Sadly, I didn't have that kind of power. Christopher was telling me what I needed. He knew that I was never gonna be able to find peace again or be happy again. I was, unless I let go of all that guilt and anger and sadness. He knew that I would never be able to remember him joyfully and share his brilliant, beautiful soul with his nephews, my sons, if I didn't find a way to let go. In the middle of his own emergency, Christopher once again took care of us in that last conversation. Catherine, that was a gorgeous way of honouring Christopher. Thank you for introducing him to us. And if you want to see Catherine tell that story, it's on our YouTube channel, along with all our previous Zoom events. Also, if you want to keep up with all things 10 by 9 wherever you are in the world, follow our social media feeds. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and of course, Instagram. And if you'd like to tell a story at 10 by 9 go along to the guidelines page on our website and get in touch. We are always looking for storytellers. Now closer to home, at least for us, for our next story, and it is from Cathy Shannon, who told this from her home in Hilltown. The last time I flew home from Leeds at Bradford Airport in England was after I graduated way back in 2000. For those of you who don't know LBA, as it became known in my head, it was little more than a large shed that a farmer forgot about. I'm told it's a little more fancy now, not quite Heathrow, but cows wouldn't mind sheltering from strong winds, perhaps. The last party I went to before I left to go to university, I attended a fancy dress, which being 17 and too cool for school, although my brothers assured me I was not cool. My friends and I dressed as characters from Reservoir Dogs. I'm not sure why I wanted to dress as a blood-soaked, deranged psychopath, especially as I've gone on to become a nurse, masquerading as Mr. Pink, but that's a whole other bottle of wine. The fancy dress outfits included our white school blouses splattered in liquid shoe polish that was originally used for my Doc Martens. Oxblood was the colour, I think. It also included a pair of handcuffs bought from, I might add, a toy store. Anne Summers did not yet qualify for a visa in Northern Ireland. So throughout my university life in England, these handcuffs reminded me of the friendships I've cherished at home. They hung on my wardrobe door for three years. Finally, packing up after my finals and graduation, they were almost forgotten in a dash out the door until a friend spotted them still in the bedroom and chased me out onto the street with them. They were hastily stuffed into my carry-on luggage as the car was already loaded with my suitcase and not even a speck of dust would have fitted in. It was one of those that had to be sat on to close it and a belt tied around it to ensure that it wouldn't fling open. 
Incidentally, when I moved to the Middle East to a strict religious country, we used to pack our frilly underwear at the top of our suitcase. So when our cases were inspected on arrival to this particular country, they were flustered by the undies, waving us through customs frantically, which of course allowed us to smuggle in all sorts of prohibited items, which oddly included the Harry Potter books, because sorcery was illegal. Back to Leeds. So I arrived just in time for my flight, one of those ones where they drag out the smallest plane they can from the back of the hangar because there's only me and the crew and a handful of others. Straight through check-in, remember when you had to queue to get your boarding pass? Then through security, where I was met with a couple of old fellas for whom this airport security was something they'd taken up after retiring from something else. Again, it was pre-9-11, so airport security at the time was rarely involved taking your jacket off, never mind the almost get ready for bed routine that it resembles now. Does anyone else check their socks that they don't have holes in them before they go to the airport? So I made my way towards the doorless frame and dutifully popped my bag onto the conveyor belt to get screened, still thinking I might just make it. The lady at the desk had told me to run. So I stood at the other side of security, having not beeped, Remember trying to remember all the duty-free orders of fags and bottles of vodka that I was told to get on the way home. But my bag did not appear. However, a few of these elderly security guards gathered around the x-ray monitor. I kid you not, they even summoned the shopkeeper from duty-free for his opinion as well. There then followed a bit of whispering, looking over their shoulders at me and a few nudges and you ask her, no, no you ask her, with pushes and shoves between them. I was the picture of innocence, despite three years in that heathen country, as my grandfather recalled it, and checked the clock again. I wasn't sure I was going to make it. I heard them calling the gate on the tannoy, although in fairness, the place was so small, a guy could have stood in the corner with his hand cupped around his mouth and shouted the gate number. Finally, whoever drew the short straw among them approached me, egged on by those behind him to ask me, Is this your bag, miss? Yes. He checked over his shoulder again, watched by four pairs of eyes waiting for the next answer. Do you have handcuffs in your bag? I swear to God, my stomach fell onto the floor and I turned a shade of red that Panton hadn't even invented yet. Sweet Jesus and all the saints, I thought. And then I remembered the notion to stand up for myself, a concept that my brothers ironically bullied into me. Yes, yes, I do. They're toy handcuffs. I could hear the sniggering. He then asked me to take the handcuffs out of my bag, which I did. He asked me to turn them over. We have to take them off you. Why? In case you handcuff the pilot to the controls. Again, days before the cockpits were locked. They're self-release, see? And I proceeded to demonstrate as if this would somehow save the pilot should I decide to do what the security guard was suggesting. Again, he looked over to his mates, who were by this stage surely had neck pain. One actually fell off the chair as he tried to get a closer look at me demonstrating. I'm sorry, miss, I need to confiscate them. You can collect them in Dublin from the air stewardess once the doors have opened. By the time I got to Dublin, I was too excited to be getting home for good and completely forgot all about them. It wasn't the last time I flew to England, but it was the last time I put handcuffs in my carry-on. Oh, Cathy, what a star. Thanks so much for that. Now, as you know, 10 by 9 is always free, but we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period. We are really thankful to everyone who has donated, including Catherine, who led off this podcast, so thank you very much, Catherine. 
It's always nice to have a bit of Temba 9 co-founder Padraig Otuma on the podcast. Before the virus, he was often away travelling, so sometimes missed the live events. But not these days. He's been grounded. Here he is with one of his many stories. I was speaking at a thing once a few years ago and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, oh, will you sign my book? And I said, sure, sure. And she said, you'll remember my name because we were in the toilet queue last year. And I was like, oh, my God. And and then I just decided to pretend that I had remembered her name, but that it was a very sophisticated name with a complicated spelling, maybe Welsh or something. And I said to her, just remind me quite how you do spell that because I don't want to get it wrong. And with um, icy lips, she said, P-A-M. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Padraig, will you never learn? Okay, it's our third and final story on this podcast, and it's from another resident of the USA. It was his first time at 10 by 9 and this is Matthew Mercier, who joined us from his barn in upstate New York. It's Sunday morning in the Mercier household. My brother and I are pulling on our corduroy pants, our plaid shirts, getting ready to march over to the dark and dreary confines of St. Mary's Catholic Church. Like all grade school boys, we know that Sundays are really for Sunday comics, leisurely breakfast, a little TV if mom will allow it. But first we have to get through this early morning hour of pain, Catholic mass, in which we're told that we're sinners and that our sins hurt Jesus. Except on this day, my father shows up in the doorway of the bedroom, still dressed in his pajamas, a clear sign that something is off. And he says, boys, I think we're gonna have mass at home today. Meet me in the kitchen in 10 minutes. My brother and I look at each other like mass at home. That's a thing, you, you can do that. All right, we're, 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 as long as we don't have to go to church. So we, we go to the, uh, the <clears throat> kitchen and mom is there in her Sunday best. Uh, Dad's in his Sunday casual, jeans and a plaid shirt. In the middle of the table on a plate is a single slice of Wonder Bread and a gallon jug of Carlo Rossi red wine, $15 a gallon. Uh, I sit down, join my family, and Father begins the Mass, as if he is Father Roland uh, at St. Mary's. He welcomes us, tells us what day it is in the Christian calendar, then gives me the Bible for the first reading. I have never read the Bible at any length, and here I am, Romans to the Corinthians or something. I don't understand it. I pass it to my brother. He does the second reading, equally incomprehensible. But then my father gives a little explanation, tells about who was writing letters to who and why it matters, and we understand it a little better. And then we get to communion. Now, I had made my first communion at this point, so I knew very well what the bread and the wine symbolized. I just didn't know how my father was going to play this, but he picks up that stale piece of Wonder Bread and he blesses it in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, bam, body of Christ. Takes the gallon jug of Carlo Rossi, glugs it into a chalice, same thing, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, bam, blood of Christ. We eat, we drink, the mass is ended, go in peace and love and serve the Lord, amen. 15 minutes was all that took. I am giddy. My brother and I go back. We get out of our dress clothes. We're like, what was that? That was like Catholic cosplay. Was that even legal? How did he do that? He's such a social worker. But we don't know. We don't care. And we don't ask too many questions. All we want is 
more till the following Sunday. Dad, can we have mass at home? Nope, get your clothes on. We're going to St. Mary's. Oh, come on, but you're so good at it. No, get, get your clothes on. Let's go. So nine times out of 10, we're at St. Mary's. So when dad does mass at home, it's very special. And we love it, not simply because of the brevity. I mean, 15 minutes is good, but because we actually, when he does the mass, we feel the love of the gospels. We actually understand the stories, which I'm sure is the intention of our local church, but it's just not getting there. And so when dad does the, the homily in this sermon, he gives a little talk, he gives a little explanation. And he's, you know, he's like, you see, boys, this is what Jesus means. He means love God, love your brother. It's that simple. All right, time for football. So we, we love it and we, it becomes so normal. And I begin to feel sorry for the other families uh, that haven't figured this out. You know, having mass at home is clearly superior than going to church every week. So, um, and this gets me in trouble. It becomes so normalized that during catechism, because that week, because we are still going to catechism, learning how to be good Catholics. And this is Simon, the, the teacher, lays out that, you know, that, that Catholic chestnut that keep holy the Sabbath, which means you must go to church every Sunday. And I raise my hand and say, uh, Mrs. Simon, what if you have church at home? Instead, does that count? And boy, she looks at me as if I have just said, I love Satan and all his good works. She says, Matthew, you only Protestants can say mass at home. You're not allowed to, are you baptized Catholic? You can't do that. My God, don't ever mention that. So I go home very confused. And I ask, uh, ask dad, he's like, dad, are, are we Protestant? Now he's upset. He looks at me like, no, we are Catholic. What are you talking about? Am I baptized? Of course you're baptized. Where's all this? So I told him what happened. And he's like, look, oh God. Okay, look, son, you can't tell anyone that I do that, that I say mass at home, right? That's our little family secret. I'm not really supposed to do it. I just keep it uh, on the down low. And he, he, but he's, you know, saying this and I'm still not getting it. He's nodding in that way that fathers do when they know the jig is up and they have to tell you something big. And so he goes to his closet and he takes out a photo album. It looks like it hasn't been opened in very long. It's kind of dusty and he cracks it open and there's a series of photos of my father as a young man. That's the first shock. Oh, my father was young. Look at that. And, but then I see the, the black robes and the white clerical collar and he's narrating. He's like, yeah, eight years in seminary. Uh, and then I went to Belgium, studied over there came back uh, to New York, had a parish on the Upper West Side. Our Lady of Esperanza had a Dominican congregation, said mass in Spanish. Um, <clears throat> and then I met your mother. End of story. Boom. Shuts the album. His life story was as short, short as his sermons. I was like, what do you mean? End of, no, wait, you met mom? How'd you meet mom? Uh, I met mom. I met your mom. That's it. End of story. Once a priest, always a priest. That's why I can say mass at home. End of story. I'm like, no, no, not end of story. What, how'd you meet mom? And he just lets out this big sigh and he's like, go ask her, right? It's complicated. So I go to mom and she says, oh, he, he finally told you, huh? You're like, yeah, yeah, what, what's, what's, this, what's the story? And she's like, look, you have to understand, Matt, uh, that period in your father's life is a very painful one. I mean, he left the priesthood for me, but, 
uh, his family, his mother, his family was extremely unhappy and his mother uh, ripped up all his baby pictures and threw him out of the house. I mean, having a priest for a son, that was like having a senator in the family. Like she, they just and completely disowned him. And they didn't like me. They called me an Italian hussy, said I was stealing your father uh, away from God. And, you know, but they also just didn't like my profession either. They weren't happy with that. And I said, well, you were a teacher. Like what could possibly be scandalous about that? And she said, oh, no, 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 my, uh, my other profession. And she goes and gets her photo album, takes it down, opens it up. There's my mother as a young woman, but she looks like Sally Field from The Flying Nun. She's got the habit, she's got the black robe and she's narrating. She's like, yep, I was a sister of mercy when I met your dad. And I said, sister of mercy. I was like, that's you, you said you were a nun? You were not, yes, Matthew, that's an order of nuns. And I just, I can't process it. And she's like, look, you have, another thing you have to understand, this was the seventies, all right? Uh, you know, the post-Vatican II, things are a little looser. Um, priests and nuns, uh, they were meeting and falling in love and they were leaving. Um, together. It was like Noah's Ark in reverse. They were leaving two by two, right? They were just abandoning ship. It was just, that's what was happening. Um, you have to, and so, and a lot of, actually, a lot of our friends and family, the people that you were raised with, uh, they're also ex-clergy, like the Noonans, Mike and Mary Beth, priest, none. <laughs> what? Yeah. And, and your godmother, Kathy? Yeah. None. None. Yeah. Mary Wooten, None, Patsy, none, and I'm, I, I cannot process. I'm like, what about, what about the O'Malley's, Jim and Grace? Oh no, no, they were just hippies. They were along for the ride, but no, just good, solid people. But, and she keeps going. She has a whole list. She's revealing. It's like revealing everyone's secret identity. And these people are amazing. They're they're radicals. Some of them came out as gay and lesbian. These, it's like a Justice League for Christ. Like these people are incredible and they're all ex-clergy. So obviously my world has changed. I don't look at my community the same ever again. Um, and I keep asking my dad questions, but he's just you know, the brick wall. Until uh, recently, after my mother sadly passed away. He finally shows me a letter that he wrote uh, to his congregation or to his superiors. I'm not sure which, but he, and the, the gist of it is, look, I'm in love with a nun and I'm leaving. And if she and I stay here in the church, we'll be taken care of. You know, we'll have a car, we'll have health insurance, we'll have everything we could ever want. But now that we're getting married and, and, and going to live together, now I'm taking my true vow of poverty, which I thought was the most profound thing I've ever, ever heard. And that letter and those homemade homilies and that, that Justice League of, of Christ, you know, they have been close to, they've, close to my heart and they've given me a great tenderness towards the church. Even as my wife uh, Riley admits, well, you don't go to church very much anymore, do you, Matt? And I was like, no, but it's, you know, it's complicated, right? Such is the life of a Catholic and such is the life of a Catholic love child. I don't know where to start. So much to unpack from that. Matthew, well, thank you so much. That was brilliant. Thank you. I, um, I can tell I, it's a great audience, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> well, the reaction was amazing when yeah, your father's reveal, and then I don't know what people were expecting for your mums, but they were equally shocked. <laughs> See, to yeah. me, it's quite normal. So I'm like, yeah, that's just that's how we roll. And yeah, I do have to pull you up about one thing. It was the 1970s, and it was a bit looser then. <laughs> I mean, where we were. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> Not in Ireland. No, 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 no. Yeah. Upper West Side in New York. Yeah. The scene was, yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> Good point. We would have loved mass at home. We did that as children. My older brother, who we all thought was going to be a priest, he used to pretend to be the priest. We'd put on the altar boy stuff and then me and my sister would be the servers or something. I don't know. Did you really? That's amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah, and that was for fun. <laughs> 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 that's, that's what Catholic uh, 1970s Ireland was like. <laughs> that's what you, hey, I, that, that's fantastic. That's, I've never heard of anyone doing that for fun. 1970s Derry versus 1970s New York. A universe of difference. Thanks so much, Matthew. That was great. And you can hear other stories from Matthew at the Moth website. And by the way, you can hear a story from Podrig and even one from me there too, if you're so motivated. And we will leave you with that for now. Podrig will be doing a poetry reading to raise funds for 10 by 9 on November the 1st. You can find more about that at the events page on our website. Might see some of you there. This podcast was written, produced, presented, mixed and published by Paul Doran. So it's all my fault. I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye. <laughs>